Once again, you, you won't hear anything. You'll forget it all, but it's on paper now. So go home, chuck it on your fridge, and then that'll be a, a good reminder for you in the week to come. One thing that I will remind you of, though, is that this Friday we have our Good Friday Easter service. <coughs> Correct response. We have our Good Friday Easter service. There we go. We come together. We celebrate that most dark and gruesome day, which is the day of our salvation. Good Friday when Jesus was offered up on the cross. That's 9.30, so normal church time here at church. Please invite your friends and your neighbors and your buddies who call themselves Christians that you know aren't. Easter is one of those two days they come. They come for Christmas. They come for Easter. So bring him here. I'll preach the gospel to him, and we'll pray that the Lord brings those seeds to fruit. Uh, also, then on Saturday, we're going to have our uh, picnic at, uh, at uh, Anthony's place uh, where we have the men's musters just to prove to you all that we do actually go somewhere legitimate and uh, that's not all a, a cover. Uh, so join us there on Saturdays and uh, we, we really look forward to having this. Uh, a church provided sausage sizzle and meat and so you bring your own other stuff. Ask somebody else that has more details. Uh, but we really hope to see you Friday and, of course, Saturday and Sunday we will be celebrating the resurrection. We'll take a break from Mark and celebrate the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Great. Well, by now, you're in Mark chapter 13. And what a, an amazingly powerful uh, discourse Jesus is now delivering this day the Mount of Olives, as he has walked out of that Jerusalem temple, having, having not too much time to recap everything, but we'll remind ourselves now at the, the last moments of Jesus' ministry on earth, he's been ministering in Galilee and the Gentile regions and going all about the fields and the villages, but now he has come into Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation, and in fact gone straight to the capital of the capital, which is the temple. And he rode into the temple on the donkey to fulfill prophecy. He was cried out as being the coming king, the Messiah, the anointed one, come to rescue us. He, he went into the temple, then he went back home. Next day, he came back and he cleared the temple of the, of the market of all of the sellers and the buyers and the animals and the coins. And he tossed them out and then sat up, set up shop in the market square, inviting all of the lame and the outcast and those that, that the high and mighty didn't want in the temple area. He invited them in and he just preached so Sermon after sermon after sermon, we at least get a picture that it's from Isaiah and he's preaching against the authority structures of the day, decrying them. In fact, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, we see him not just preach out of Isaiah in this sort of somewhat pointed way. And of course, then the Sadducees come up with a question and he destroys them and the Pharisees come up with a question and he throws them down and the Herodians come up with a question to trap him and he throws them down. But then, of course, in Matthew 23, we, we only get a, a short glimpse of this. We looked at this at the end of Mark chapter 12. Uh, Jesus decries the leadership with, with that prophetic woe. Remember when you read the Old Testament prophets and they come to Jerusalem that is deserving punishment and, and they'll say, woe upon you, this nation. Woe upon you, this tribe. Woe upon you, this city. And that is what Jesus comes and does in the temple itself. He says, woe to the scribes, woe to the Pharisees, woe to those who set up their own glory-hungry, money-hungry, widow-abusing system of power in God's structure. You will be cast down. And he said to them that this house, this temple that we're sitting in right now, he said to them, will be left to you desolated, destroyed. It will be torn down. And then he leaves 
Just like the, the spirit in the old covenant that, that left the glory of the, 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 of the glory of God by the spirit left the temple and went and rested on the Mount of Olives to show that God is no longer protecting or blessing that temple that is now an accursed temple. God will not meet people there anymore. And just in a few days' time, as Jesus dies on Good Friday, the Holy of Holies will be torn open to the unholy places when the, the curtain is, is broken at the death of Jesus, God is symbolizing and signifying that he is done with that old covenant system. Why? Is it because God is realizing his mistakes and he's human like any of us and he's thought up a, a better way now to reach the world, not through the Jews, not through the temple? There was something wrong with that system? The answer is no. That is not why he's tearing down the old covenant, the old system. In fact, we would probably get a bit uncomfortable if I used the language of abolishing or tearing down the old system because you know Jesus said, I didn't come to tear down the law. I came to fulfill it. Fulfill it. Bring it to its purposed, appointed end. The reason that the old covenant is coming down is because it's done its job, like scaffolding around another building. Once the building is finished, once the purpose of that scaffolding is reached its end, the scaffolding can be torn down and no one will shed a tear because it was only there until the true building was built. Well, the Old Covenant is exactly that. The point of the Old Covenant, the point of the whole Israel system was to provide the world with a Messiah, was to provide the world with an exegesis, really, of 1,500 years this nation was in existence and showing to the world laws aren't good enough, sacrifices won't get you near to God, a beautiful temple is not enough, you need the Holy Spirit inside you, not a building, the laws written on your heart, not on stone, and God changing who you are, not just what ethnicity or nation you belong to. That's what the old system was showing us now that as Jesus came, there's a twofold reason that the temple needs to come down. First of all, because it's now obsolete, now that the true temple, the one greater than Solomon, the true David, the true Lamb of God, the true priest, prophet, and king is here. We don't need the shadow. Just go and read Hebrews. That's, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. But secondly, it's going to be coming down in a very unpeaceful way because the Jerusalem leadership the Israelite spiritual leadership of the day is entirely cursed. They've opposed God's law, they break God's law daily, and they have now opposed and will soon murder God himself in human flesh, the Lord of glory. So they are a cursed generation. And Jesus said to them that this house will be left to you desolate. The beginning of Mark chapter 13 shows us that when they went away, four of his disciples specifically asked him, when will these things happen? Like we just said as they were leaving the temple, what a beautiful building. He said, it looks nice, but it's coming down. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And they said, when will these things happen? Because they understood that the temple is kind of central to what we Jews do. Like this is where we worship, this is where we sacrifice, this is where we learn. What, what, is, it, what is it going to look like when that is coming down? And Jesus begins to answer them. In Mark 13, or you can find the other versions in Luke 21 or Matthew 24, what we see is Jesus answer that question. What will be happening in the world before the time that God's judgment on unbelieving, covenant-breaking Israel is poured out? 
He says multiple things last week. He says, first of all, don't be alarmed that there'll be wars. There'll be rumors of wars. The peace of Rome will be demolished as as nations in this beautifully peaceful empire start coming up against one another and and the lands will be shaking with this political uh, 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 destruction. But also there there will be actual earthquakes and there will be famines and there will be false Christs and messiahs. And we saw last week that all of those things happened in the period of the apostles preaching before the temple came down in AD 70, just 37 years later. Within one generation, God brought judgment on that people. So we're seeing then, as introduction to today's text, God is, through Jesus, destroying the old temple. He's now cursing it, and then it will soon be destroyed. And yet at the same time, what did Jesus say in the parable of the tenants? Just uh, at the beginning of Mark chapter 12, he says, The land will be taken from you, God's vineyard, to produce fruit, to glorify God. It will be taken from the Israelites, the the spiritual leadership, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, etc., and given to a people who will produce fruit. Fruit. If we can turn around the analogy just a little bit, we can say that God is going to destroy their temple and build his new temple, his own temple, the perfect temple, the true temple, which the old temple was always looking forward to, the very temple of God in the earth made up of every nation and every tribe and every tongue, the church of Jesus Christ redeemed by his blood. You are the very temple of God this morning, church. So let's see what Jesus says as he sort of takes a, takes a turn. In verse 9, he's no longer just talking about the, the cosmic, the, the, the political and even physical changes that will come upon this land when Jesus is about to come and destroy Jerusalem through Roman's armies. The, the whole world, as the, as the Son of Man takes his seat on Messiah's throne, the whole world, political to the creation, will convulse. And yet there will be another marker. He says in verse 9, read with me now, (coughs) follow along in your own Bibles, verse 9, but be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but for the one who endures to the end, they will be Saved. May God bless his own inerrant, powerful word to our midst this morning. Amen. Amen. Jesus starts to give the disciples the signs of the times. This is what is going to happen, that as they are his apostles, those who are asking, standing with him on the Mount of Olives, he's speaking to them and saying that while you're going to be emissaries of the king, while you're going to be messengers for the new David, the, the, the Lord and son of David, the, the king that has come, the new covenant that is opening up, the new temple that is being built, you're going to be that. We'll see in Revelation, the book of Revelation, that the apostles are the foundation of the new temple, 
Again, the temple, the church. He's going to send them out as stones to be the foundation in the world of the new spiritual temple, and yet that's not going to be all glory, all money, all wealth, and all ease. He's sending them out, as he's already said at an earlier point of the gospel, like sheep among wolves. So he says in verse 9, as you will go, and they still don't understand the whole reality of the Great Commission. They're still confused disciples. They still don't even know that he's going to die. So they don't even get the core of their message. And yet he says, be on guard for they will deliver you over to the councils and be beaten in synagogues. I love, that, I love that in verse 7, he said, do not be alarmed. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. And then in this place, he's saying, but be on guard. I think that even right now, we can start pulling out application for ourselves in the kind of world that we live in, and we can start realizing that we have two tendencies. Maybe two types of Christians would be too much of an easy dichotomy, but I'm a preacher, I'll do that. There's two types of Christians. Which one are you? There's the type that will be looking around at the world today, the political sphere, the moral decay, the social decline, and with every fiber of their being, they are alarmed. They, they, they disregard this, this command of Jesus. Now, we've established this was to the apostles at that time and all of that, and yet we can take the same message. Do not be alarmed when the world around you convulses. Jesus is on the throne. And yet there's a, there's a naive, foolish optimism over this side which refuses to be on guard. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have any, anything against the Christian faith, would they? Everybody's just a good person. They're only, they're only against what we're saying because they don't understand it. If we just keep on loving, keep on doing social uh, uh, service drives and keep on giving away things, surely everybody, once they meet Jesus, they'll just love him. There's no schemes. There's no agendas. There's no, no kind of a political uh, 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 motivation to crush and de, you know, kneecap the church. Is there? And maybe people over on the alarmist side would say, absolutely, there is and we need to bunker down or we need to fight in the streets or we need to revolt or we at least need to be stressed and anxious and sweating every single day. But Jesus says, do not be alarmed. But golly, don't be fools. They will take you. There are schemes. There is an agenda. They do want to, as Psalm 2 tells us, tear down the sovereignty of God and his Christ on the throne. And to do that, they silence the messengers of the church, of course, but big whoop, if that's all they can do, is that all they can do is beat me in synagogues, stand us before kings and governors and who knows, even slice off our heads like would happen to Paul? Big deal. My king is still on the throne. He is still ruling and reigning, especially through the church over the whole of this tiny little globe and he will have the victory. Amen? Be, do not be alarmed, but be on guard, he tells his disciples. Be on guard because they will take you and beat you and try you. Now, even as you just read verse 9 there, it reads as a, I think, very uh, uh, Holy Spirit-inspired intentional summary of the whole book of Acts. This section is just a summary of the book of Acts in the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we read 
that they are handed, the disciples and the apostles are handed over to councils. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter heals that lame man at the city gates and then starts preaching in Solomon's portico about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's arrested and he's dragged before the Sanhedrin. You remember the Sanhedrin, 71 uh, member council that ruled and reigned over the political justice sphere of Jerusalem. Little, little clue, they'd been pretty busy just a couple of months earlier trying and crucifying Jesus. That's the Sanhedrin. And they, they will be dragged there. Peter and James will be, sorry, Peter and John are dragged there in front of the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 23, Paul himself is again arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin to give account for this gospel that he is proclaiming. In Acts chapter 16, we see not only uh, the Jewish councils, but also the Gentile councils. In Acts chapter 16, verse 19, Paul, uh, uh, Paul and Silas are dragged before the city council in Philippi. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, Jason, who was a Christian brother that was housing Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, he too is taken, dragged, thrown in front of the council of the city of Thessalonica. In order to fulfill what Jesus said when he says that they will deliver you over to councils. He prophesied it. It became true, and we see it in Holy Scripture. He also says, though, in verse 9, it's a jam-packed verse, he says they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogue. So it's not all just light and fairy uh, uh, legal proceedings in councils. We see Paul, actually, in Acts chapter 22, verse 9, uh, verse 19 for those taking notes. Paul says, as he's giving his testimony, he says, in my very early days, as this Christian cult started rising up, it was my job. What I did was go around to the synagogues and whip and beat the Christians in the synagogues. Now, here's Paul, an enemy of the church, fulfilling in that day, fulfilling the exact prophecy that Jesus would give, which is that the Christians giving witness to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his enthronement on high, where he will judge the living and the dead. That message had them beaten up in their local Jewish churches called synagogues. But it was not simply Jerusalem and, and the Jewish synagogues that would beat them. In fact, we see that they are beaten in other places. In Acts chapter 14, verse 5, we see that Paul and Barnabas are dragged and attempted to be destroyed by beating in Iconium. They escape and make their way to the very safe uh, uh, Lystra where they are, just a few verses later, stoned. Paul is stoned with rocks and he is left for dead. You don't, when you're stoning somebody, much like the guillotine or, 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 or death by the firing squad, you don't stop if you think they're still breathing. So maybe at this point, Paul actually dies and Jesus raises him again says, sorry, not now, no peace of heaven, you got work to do. Or maybe he just miraculously is prayed over by the other Christians. Somehow he's left for dead, covered in stones, broken body, skull caved in, and he gets up, goes back in, encourages the brothers. And then he goes, of course, to take a nice little sabbatical because he doesn't like suffering. Jesus had promised him wealth and blessing. And so he takes a nice little trip down to Philippi where he is arrested and beaten with rods and thrown in jail. Jesus had prophesied, the disciples would experience, Luke would then write down in the book of Acts that they would be beaten and especially in the synagogues. And then of course he says, end of verse 9, and you will stand before governors 
and kings for my name, for my sake to bear witness before them. In Acts chapter 23 to 25, we see that if we just take one example, Paul, he was put on trial in front of Festus and then his successor, Felix. These, these proconsuls or the governors of Judea that were sort of ruling the area underneath King Agrippa and underneath Rome itself, they were sent there to sort of govern and look after financial things and justice proceedings. And, and so Paul was put on trial before Festus and before Felix in order to fulfill what Jesus had spoken, that they would bear witness before governors, governors and kings. And not to be undone and not to have his prophecy not fulfilled. God so ordained that Paul, not just before the governors, but in fact before King Agrippa. You remember this in, in uh, Acts chapter 25 and 26 that we did at the end of our Acts series that, that Paul is taken to that huge glorious hall in his disheveled, falling apart prison clothes and, and Agrippa comes in and all of his pomp and glory and Paul there gives witness to the trial that is against him and he does not waste the opportunity. He uses that moment to proclaim, to proclaim that Jesus is God and Jesus died for sinners and Jesus rose again and Jesus is the true king of Agrippa and Jesus has a throne and a crown waiting for me and all those who name his name, O King Agrippa. And as he proclaims, King Agrippa then says, uh, are you trying to, you know, he catches on, he's a smart bird and he goes, are you, are you trying to make me a Christian Paul? He finally understands the Christian mission, which is to take over the whole globe with a glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello. Yes, that's what we're doing. You try to make me a Christian. And Paul says, King Agrippa, I would have that you and everybody here in the, in, in the, in the stands would be as I am as a Christian, except for these chains that are on my hands. It fulfilled that ministry, that, that prophecy that Jesus gave, which is that they would stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about them. In fact, even more than this, we get clues in the epistles that Paul writes that he was even, as he had made that appeal, he was dragged to Rome where he gave his witness before Nero himself, the very Caesar that would lop Paul's head off in years to come. The gospel. The gospel is God's plan and mission in the world. It's not political advance. It's not social good. If you are in the temple of God by faith, if you are saved, then the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes and many will believe is the gospel. And God so uses his providence to put at the forefront of all that he is doing the gospel. We need to see this, that it's, as we live in a day like we do of, of media and technology and politics and whatever else, in every age, we need to know that God so bends his will, so utilizes his sovereignty, so as to give opportunity for faithful churches to proclaim the gospel. You see, if they were over on this camp and they were an alarmed group of Christians, they could have just kept on writing home prayer requests. I'm going to do as little as I can. Please just keep me safe. I'm so worried. I'm being dragged before kings and governors and councils and Caesars. But not Paul. Not the apostles who we should follow in the footsteps of, their model was whoever you put me before, however high up we go, we simply see this as Jesus' own sovereignty in giving his fledgling, little, weak discipleship church a voice to the very king of the known world. God loves to do this. 
If we are hungry to share the gospel, God will give us opportunity to proclaim. And so they went. And so it was fulfilled that they were handed over to councils. They were beaten in synagogues. They stood before governors and kings for his sake. And they did not fail to bear witness about him. Jesus is a true, God-breathed, in fact, God himself, prophet in all that he says here today. But he goes on. Not only do we see the sort of summary of the book of Acts in verse 9, look now at verse 10 as we see the triumph of this gospel. It says in verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. You will be beaten. They will arrest you. But what good will those things do? The gospel will not be stopped. As Paul said, I'm in chains I am bound, I can't leave this room, but the word of God is not bound. And though they would be arrested and jailed and beaten and imprisoned, the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to all nations. This is not, 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 not a prophecy of the end times of the world, that before Jesus comes back to raise and judge the living and the dead, that the gospel will go over the world. It will. There's prophecies for that. It's just not here. What Jesus is saying is that before Jerusalem is torn down, before this generation ends, before I come back in judgment over the covenant breakers, first, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. We might start asking the question on how that could be fulfilled in and by the year AD 70 or in the New Testament time unless we're just twisting the scripture to make it what your pastor or you or your favorite theologian wants it to say. There's very good reasons, biblically, to to, to hear that as we hear all nations, our first assumption is, and let's just remember that our first assumption when we're reading the Bible is just not always the right assumption. That's fair. I think we can all agree with that. Biblically, the language of all nations and the whole world is used in in the Bible's own account to say that this was fulfilled by the the, the, the end of the New Testament being written. There is um, language in the Bible. I mean, in, in Matthew 24, Matthew's version of this, he will actually make it sort of even harder to get past this. He says, the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So you've got the whole world, all nations. How can that be fulfilled, oh, apostles and Jesus the prophet? How can that be fulfilled by AD 70 when even uh, uh, after that, Australia was not evangelized, China was not evangelized, the Antarctic did not receive the gospel? How can that be fulfilled? Well, the language of the Bible helps us as Scripture interprets Scripture. That is our key hermeneutical rule. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, they use the language to say that there is a famine in the whole world. They're using that Greek word. Did they mean that the famine had spread right down to Australia and across to China and jumped the sea also over into Japan? Do we believe that? Of course not. It's the language of, in fact, the Greek word there is often used for the whole known world. Or if we could speak of the Roman Empire, this multinational, enormous, greatest empire that has ever ruled on earth, they would use this language of the whole world to speak of the whole empire. The known world is the Greek word there. Or or again, in Acts 17, verse 6, they say, These men, by their preaching of the gospel, have turned the whole world upside down. 
Now, to take that too literally would be to do injustice to the text. What we understand them to mean is that this whole empire, all the nations we know about, have been turned upside down by the ruckus that the Christians are causing by their preaching of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we can take when he says the whole world. He means the whole known world, the whole Roman Empire. And when he says all nations in Mark chapter 13 and verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations we know that this very thing is completed because of what Paul and other writers will go on to say. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5 already, like this, is, this is early days. This is the day of Pentecost. <laughs> the, the very first day that the church will be birthed and 3,000 added to their number. We're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that Jews, people from all nations under heaven, were present. Think again of how, how sovereign God is to orchestrate this occurrence. There were Jews living in every nation under heaven, of course, the known world. There weren't Australian Jews. They didn't make the trip. That's a pretty long trip for Passover. And yet they all came together for that big holiday of Pentecost. They came to the city such that when the Spirit fell and the gospel was proclaimed, there was men and women being saved from all over the world so that Acts 2 can say, people from every nation under heaven on the first day that the gospel is being preached were hearing it and being converted. Jesus was not slow to fulfill this promise. But it goes further. Not only do people from every nation, but all of the nations in the known world would eventually hear the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 verse 8, he says that the whole cosmos, the whole world has heard of the faith. In chapter 10, verse 18 of Romans, Paul says that the, the gospel has gone to the end of the world. In Colossians 1, verse 5 through 6, he uses language to say that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. In Colossians 1, verse 23, Paul says, the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In the understanding of the apostles, God had fulfilled his prophecy through Jesus and taken the gospel to every nation that they knew about. Every nation that there was in their world had heard the proclamation that Jesus died for sinners so that sinners do not need to work their way to God but can rest on his finished work and be forgiven by the grace of the Lord God. That gospel had gone to every single nation, and in fact, by the end of the 50s. So God, the, the book of Romans was written somewhere in the late 50s. Even by then, just 20-something years later, after Jesus prophesying this, Paul will say this in Romans chapter 16, verse 15 through 16, he says that the gospel has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. The command of the eternal God and the prophecy of that eternal God in flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ was that he would not fail to preach and proclaim through his spirit-empowered church the gospel to all nations and it happened and so we see in even Revelation chapter 12, he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. And they 
have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved their lives even unto so they loved not their lives even unto death yes the persecution would rise up it would all be focused into the, into the Christian community. The Romans, every other nation, and the Jews would, would be empowered against the church. And yet, Jesus would ensure that the gospel was proclaimed to the end of the world like a little bit of yeast in leaven, uh, sorry, a little bit of leaven in dough. It would spread. Such is the organic power, the spirit-empowered power and momentum of the gospel that it cannot be stopped. So let's just reorient ourselves about halfway through this text now. Reestablish where we're at. Jesus is saying that temple, as wars circulate, as rumors of wars build up, the old temple, the symbol of the old system is going to come down. But in the midst of that, my new temple, the church, by the power of the gospel, will be built, will be established, will be over the whole earth as people in the, every nation believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Destroy the old tem- temple. I'll build my new temple. You'll be persecuted, he says to the Christians, but you will triumph. And he goes on to say, when he speaks now of the source of their triumph. Lest we rest on ourselves and notice, maybe even our own day, a bit of church momentum, people getting saved, more and more baptisms, gospel is being believed, and we start to look at ourselves and say, look at, look at how good we're doing, look at how powerful we are, look at how great we are going. Jesus is quick to ensure, to remind them what the source of that triumph was in the first generation and what the source of the gospel triumph is in every generation. He says in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're anything like me, you've heard that text preached, preached as an excuse for pastors, pastors not to prepare in their study in order to come and preach to their church. All in quotations, because if you don't have well-studied Bible being preached by ordained people who study the Bible, you don't have a biblical church. All that to say, that's not what this verse is saying. That just gets me off, off the hook. I, I have to study. That, that's my excuse every week to spend study. That's not what that says. Don't come at me with that verse. i got to study. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in the moments when the heat is turned up and the, tr- and the troubles and tribulation of the Christians is being experienced, they need not be alarmed what they will say. For if God was so gracious as to give this world the Lord Jesus Christ that we needed, God in flesh to die for our sins, he will not let that glorious gospel, that treasure which must be believed to be saved, then fall to the ground flat because it's being carried around in jar in clay jars. Brother, he will make sure that though you are made of clay, though you are a filthy person of the dirt and the gospel is in your mouth, the Holy Spirit will be sure to proclaim Jesus through you. Not an angel in heaven, through you. We see this all through the book of Acts when Jesus says, do not be alarmed, do not, but do be on your guard and don't be anxious, he says again here, because the Holy Spirit will be sent at Pentecost and will lead the, the disciples into a faithful witness. We, we actually see this. In times when they are precisely under trial, 
And we see the language, um, the Holy Spirit came, or, or being filled with the Holy Spirit, something like that. We see it in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, when Peter is before the Sanhedrin, and the Spirit came upon him, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel to them. You killed the Savior, God raised him up, repent or perish. Again, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, we see Stephen, again, before the Sanhedrin, filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He boldly proclaimed that they are unfaithful. God is faithful. They killed Jesus. God raised him up. You're going to be judged. Jesus will do the judging. He is the son of man. You are the judged nation. And so they picked up stones and stoned him to death. Again, in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, we see that before the proconsul, where there was false, um, uh, 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 where people were, were there making false accusation, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and curses those people who are there, uh, uh, the person who is there bringing false witness. The Spirit comes, boldness arrives in him, and proclamation follows. We see that in Acts 4, 5, 7, 14, 16, 17, 23, 24, 25, 26, and 28 all give us accounts, right? So the whole book of Acts gives us an account of Christians on trial, giving witness before God and man of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had his words fulfilled in this glorious promise to the church. I will be with you to the end of the age. And he was, especially to this generation. The source of their triumph was the power of the Spirit. And lastly, we see the perseverance. Look at verse 12 and 13. What a, what a striking promise and exhortation Jesus gives in this verse. He says, and brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. As the old system was coming down around them, as God had cursed and was tearing down the old apostate Israelite system and establishing his new temple, his new covenant people through the church of both Jew and Gentile, anybody who would believe on Jesus, give up their own good works and simply rely on his grace as he was building that new system. The family, the biological family, would itself be twisted as these two new allegiances are pulled. As, as Judaism, the apostate Judaism, was, was pulling some people this direction, and children were being saved, those children would be handed over to councils to be killed for blasphemy. As, as, as families are being converted, and in Acts we see whole households converted, but at other times we don't see that. And parents start throwing over their children to be tried or children against their families to go and be tried as they are accused of blasphemy against the Roman gods and blasphemy, of course, against the Jewish God of Scripture. This old, as the old system came down, Jesus had even prophesied that those who kill you will think it to be a service to God. Such would be the tribulation and the trial coming upon the first century church. He says that you'll be hated by all. Just in case they thought there was a glimmer of hope that the Jews are going to get angry, but we're going to go to all nations, you just said. All of the nations will hear the gospel. The Gentiles will receive us blessedly. Right, Jesus? Jesus says to them, you'll be hated 
by all, far and near, in your households and in the councils that you'll be handed over to. You will be hated. They will try and strangle you because your Lord is on a throne they cannot tear down, but they will try and tear down his hands and his feet on earth. They, they pinned nails through his hands and feet the first time that Jesus was incarnate on the earth. And now the world still tries and puts nails through the hands and feet of Jesus, his church, in every generation. To this generation, Jesus prophesied that and it would no doubt be fulfilled. But he says, look at verse 13, the end of verse 13. He says this, said this before in, in different ways in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I love that he says endure here. I love that in Jesus' moment, he doesn't take up pop psychology, soft, effeminate counseling and therapy and say, you're going to suffer. Let's try and avoid that together. Let's just see what we can do to maybe change your tone and maybe try and escape as much as we can because I love you and I'm trying to be a really helpful, healthy leader here and help you escape from suffering. Jesus is a warrior king who wants Psalm 110 says that the people of the Messiah will be made willing in a day of his power. When Jesus proclaims, I am king, I have enemies, the gospel is to be proclaimed and all they can do is kill you, we must be those. The disciples had to be those who were willing to endure. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who hold on to the gospel to begin with, who are thankful for salvation, thankful for the kingdom of the Messiah, thankful for eternal life and bitter forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and the miracles and all these other things, those who try and claim that and yet fall away when the pressure is turned up, when they're delivered over to swords and recant their faith, when they're handed over to the animals and the wild beasts and they proclaim that they do not believe in the Lord Jesus. When that happens, Jesus is saying to that person, they did not have a persevering faith. They rejected the Lord Jesus before man. The Son of Man will reject them before his Father. Those who endure. The book of Hebrews tells us we have much need of endurance. Don't sit on your haunches and, and, and try and tell yourself that you've had a glorious pastime. You, you've been a part of some kind, maybe a revival, maybe a great work in your youth. Maybe, maybe you had a past when you really served Jesus and that was great. But, but you've got to the point where you just have the excuse to, maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's all out worldly lifestyle. Maybe it's, maybe it's just your church life. You're going to go into neutral because it's downhill from here and you're going to coast into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our comfortable world, our comfortable life does not excuse us from this warning of tribulation. It just makes the temptation all the more sneaky. You can give up and fail to endure without ever being arrested and thrown before the councils. Isn't it a rebuke to us that, that we can fail to endure. The devil doesn't need to throw us into jail. He doesn't need to turn up the heat, the distractions, our own sin, worldliness around us, the all-too-common pastoral encouragement to not work too hard. It's okay. Jesus is on the throne. All of these are the whispers of the devil to make you fail to endure to the end and be saved. Faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ justifies this Jesus who came, who lived, who died, he is the one who accomplishes salvation for us, which means that for any non-Christians right now in this room, 
For any of us who are not saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not receive a a 10-point to-do list to be saved. You just receive the promise. If you believe in Jesus, rest in Jesus' finished work, you will be saved. Praise God for his grace. And yet to the Christians, we've been commanded and compelled and exhorted in Jesus' words here. As he is building his temple, he does it through those who proclaim the gospel unfailingly, zealously, unfatiguingly. Are we those? Are we the living stones in the temple bearing witness to our Lord Jesus Christ? And if we are faithful... God will give us glorious opportunity to see his name proclaimed before governors and before kings and in any other situation he brings us to. The old temple was being destroyed for it was fulfilled. The new temple was being built up. I love the story of Thomas Cramner who was in the 1500s. He had done a lot of work in reforming the English church as the, as the Reformation was underway. And, and he had, as the royalty of the day, as the monarchy changed over, a Catholic queen came in and put him on trial for, for, uh, uh, for treason against her and, of course, blasphemy against the Catholic cause. And he quickly was under pressure and he wrote out a big long treatise saying, I reject everything I wrote. I, was, I, was, I don't know what was in my English tea and my English breakfast. I don't know. I, I became a reformer. I'm so sorry he recants the gospel of salvation by grace alone in preferment of safety inside the system of the Catholics that demands works for salvation. He was taken before trial. You've heard me tell this story before. And he was made to speak a a speech to all of the royals and nobles of England in order to say, "I, I recant all that I ever said. And in the moment, as that moment came to give witness, he tore up his speech and said, this hand signed a document to say that I recant the true teachings of the reformers and the Bible. Let this hand, when I go to the flames, be the first thing to be cleansed. Let the first thing to be burned. For I stand on what I have said, that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is Savior, that faith alone justifies, and that grace alone is what saves us. He, though shaky, and this is an encouragement to us, though a season of shakiness and failure and cowardice and weakness has begotten you and beset you, yet you are not at the end yet. There is yet time to repent, to be active, to proclaim to the end. Cramner was arrested, pulled down from the pulpit he was in and taken to the, to the sticks where he was put on, strapped and burned. And as the flames came up, he got his hand loose and shoved it into the flame, holding up a fiery torch of a human hand. And as his flesh just dripped off of it, he said, there, I have penance. I'm now cleansed of my sin. I die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are you today? Do you need to believe and be saved? Well, having been saved, you now need to get active and preach and proclaim and thank God for his grace. Let's pray. Father, as we read this account, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus that was so specifically about that first generation, we, we look at how you have inspired the, the writers to come after Jesus spoke this. And, and they accounted for us his prophecy, and they showed us that it all came to pass before that time that the old system would be torn down. We thank you, Lord God, that we recognize just in, in this way, as a, as a true prophet, Jesus prophesied truly and accurately. We thank you that you bore witness to that through history. We thank you that not only his, his prophecies for the first generation about judgment and the destruction of the temple were fulfilled, but every word that came out of his mouth is sure, is trustworthy, 
We can bank our life on the words of this true prophet, this true God, this true Savior and Messiah. And he said that any who come to me, I will not cast out. And anyone that places their faith in me will not be put to shame, but in me is eternal life. Father God, I pray that those sitting here today who are not in Christ, who are not saved, who are not justified, they're still in their sins. They know their sins. They're overpowered by their sins. They're constantly living in their sins. Lord God, you are, you've condemned them. And were they to die now, they would, they would be thrown into an eternal condemnation of hell. But we ask that in our midst, you would give the gift of salvation. You would give to them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness, and all of the blessings that come along with that, Lord God. And we ask that just as the apostles believed the promise of Jesus and proclaimed boldly, even unto death, would you make that boldness rest in our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you so come to us? Would you so walk with us and keep us in step with you that we are following the footsteps of the apostles? That we're not hungry for the miracles and we're not hungry for the, for the flashy show and the writing scripture and all the authority, Lord. We just want to be found faithful as those who spoke the gospel, proclaimed the gospel, believed the gospel, and we're never pushed back by the pressures of the world. Make this church and every individual within it and all those that will become a part of us into the future faithful with this gospel that you have given to us. For Jesus is worthy of our souls, our faith, our trust, and our whole lives in proclamation. And everybody who believes this in Jesus' name said, Amen. Amen.